Minnow Middle got you down. Crush your sugar cravings with delicious all-natural Bossa Bars for menopause. Created to help women manage weight loss and energy during the pause. Try them at BossaBars.com and save 10% with code HOTCOOL10. Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And we are doing an extra special bonus series on women in business, specifically executives 40 plus, their secrets, how they got there, what advice they would give women who are perhaps in this stage of life where you're transitioning to a different career or you're building your career to kind of the top of the ladder. And the first person that we invited is the former CEO of Neiman Marcus, Karen Katz. And Bridget, you're going to tell us a little bit about Karen. Well, Karen started at Neiman Marcus in 1985 as a merchandise manager, and she worked her way up to the very top position of CEO of Neiman Marcus. Uh, She's a graduate of the University of Texas, and she holds several board memberships. I know she's on the Real Real board, which is one of my favorite places to shop. I love to buy. I love to sell with the Real Real. I know I'm not sponsored by the Real Real, but I just love it. But we should be. We should be. So um, she is also on Humana's board. So we talked to Karen a lot about what it was like. Was she the only female in the room? You know, and she was many times the only female in the room. It was one of the first businesses to have an online business, because if you can recall the catalog that you would get from Neiman Marcus and Colleen and I love. Let's let's talk talk about that. (laughs) So for those of you who have listened to us for a while, you know, at Christmas time, I like to get the Neiman Marcus catalog because it's. It has this outrageously expensive section. And I do a little quiz with Bridget and I throw out like a trip to Europe with this is how much do you think it's for sale in Neiman Marcus? And she guesses and it's and I've usually never an, gotten it right. Never. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually an outrageous amount. But yeah. luckily, Karen was there at the time when they were doing a lot of these. So she kind of gave us the inside scoop on how they pick the items, how they price the items. Do people really buy the items? And a hysterical story about some animals that were purchased that they wanted to return years later. So you'll hear that from Karen (laughs) as well. But yeah, yeah, so if you like the Neiman Marcus Christmas catalog, you're going to love this conversation as well. Yeah, it it is fascinating. I just loved hearing to hear about it. And also the people that came up in the fashion world. It was really interesting to hear about that aspect as well. But we hope you will enjoy listening to the story from Karen Katz. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, everybody. Today we have Karen Katz with us. And Karen is the former uh, CEO of Neiman Marcus Group. And Colleen and I, as you know, as our listeners know, we love Neiman Marcus and we love to quiz each other. Or actually, <laughs> Colleen quizzes me about the uh, the Neiman Marcus, Marcus Christmas, Christmas holiday yes. yes catalog. So welcome, Karen. Well, it's nice to be here. Thank you, uh, Bridget and Colleen, for inviting me. Well, we just think it's really great that you are a female CEO or held this position and you were with Neiman Marcus for uh, 33 years. Is that right? Exactly. For most yeah. of my adult life, I like to say. 
Wow. And I mean, I think that's great that you are, you know, your former CEO. How long were you CEO of Neiman Marcus Group? I was a CEO for eight years. And uh, previous to becoming CEO, I was president of the corporation for nine years. You started mid-level and you worked your way up. How hard was that? Yeah, I, so I uh, I had been a, a buyer at a department store uh, in Houston. I live in Dallas now, but I had been a buyer at a department store in Houston and then I decided to move to Neiman Marcus as an assistant store manager. Uh, and and frankly, you know, I, I've said this to, to people uh, my entire career and my life. Like if you had met me in high school, I was the least uh, expected person to become the CEO of anything because uh, that just wasn't my path. But, you know, I kind of found that uh, as I accomplished uh, one position, I thought, well, maybe I could do the next position. And kind of one thing led to another. And, you know, all of a sudden I, you know, looked behind me and I had come quite a long way in my career. And, uh, and you know, I'm proud of that. Uh but I'm probably prouder of the fact that um, I, I think it gives a path for women who don't necessarily ever dream about becoming a CEO, that it really is possible if you work hard and you surround yourself with good people and those kinds of things. Yeah. And that was, you know, another question I had was being a woman in a CEO position of such a large company, were you around a lot of other women in a similar position? Did you run into that a lot? Yeah, I will say that the retailing industry, um, the the industry itself was kinder to women, if you will, uh, than a lot of other industries. And I think that was, you know, part of being in the fashion luxury industry. And so there were a few women that had been CEOs of other, you know, pretty large uh, retailers uh, before me. Uh, I was actually, strangely enough, the second woman to lead Neiman Marcus because the company was founded by a woman and her brother in 1907. So Carrie Marcus Neiman, she was really kind of the first president of the company. So when I came along, I have to give great respect to her because even though most people thought I was the first female CEO, uh, there really was somebody before me. Um, There were some good role models and I hope I was a good role model to other women. When you start, so you started in 1985 as a merchandise manager and you worked your way up. There have been a lot of changes, not necessarily, not just in fashion, but for women in, in the corporate world and also for online. And I know you played a big role in Nima Marcus in bringing the brick and mortar to an online presence. How was that transition? Well, it, it was, uh, we were very early in embracing uh, digital transformation. People talk about it today, but Neiman Marcus was uh, the first department store to go online and the first luxury company to, company to go online in 1999. So to kind of put that in perspective, Amazon basically started in 1995, right around then. eBay started in 1995. So just to you know, kind of give your listeners, you know, some perspective. So we started just a few years later. So it was very, very early. Um, The good news for us was we had a a big catalog business. So, you know, people of a certain age remember that Neiman Marcus used to send out lots and lots of catalogs. And so we had that base. We knew how to fulfill, you know, um, 
product, the merchandise that you wanted to buy, it's the same as when you fulfill it from a catalog. We had agents that you called, you know, 1-800-whatever, Marcus, to place orders. So all of that back of the house, that was easy for us because that was already in place. The hard part was really shifting to online and getting um, the customers to understand that it was safe to buy online, but even harder than our customers were the luxury vendors that we did business with. And so, you know, you think about, I don't know, any of the luxury, you know, folks, Chanel, Louis Vuitton, Prada, Gucci, any of them, there was real resistance to starting a business online uh, because the Europeans at the time were very far behind uh, the U.S. when it came to online shopping. Oh my God. I, you know, I didn't even think about that. And I can remember when you started talking about the 1-800, I'm like, that's right. That's how we had to do it. <laughs> you yeah. know, call to place an order or even fill out the little thing inside, you know, the little oh, order form, okay. stick it in the mail. Oh my goodness. That's I right. up. Yeah. With a check. With a check. So. With a right. check. That's right. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Were you responsible for kind of convincing them to give online a try or was it just kind of trial and error? No, I spent, I, mean, so I spent my first uh, few years when I became president of what we called at the time Neiman Marcus Direct because it was still a catalog business. And then we moved to, you know, doing NeimanMarcus.com. I spent so much time in Europe with our, you know, European partners I used to say groveling. I mean, my knees, you know, had just terrible sores on But <laughs> begging them to join us. And, uh, and, you know, it was kind of funny. Once we got a couple of people who were more forward thinking of our European vendors to embrace that e-commerce really was the path. I mean, it's really hard for people that I talk to about this to even understand, like, what were they thinking? Why wouldn't they join? You know, it just wasn't just wasn't the way people thought about things in you know, 99, 2000, 2001. But once we got a couple of people, there was a little bit of a, you know, kind of, I need to keep up with, you know, the other a luxury vendor. So it came a little bit more quickly. It was really hard work, though, those first few years. Yeah, I, I mean, I can understand that. I, I guess, you know, when something is new, you're just scared about it and you're exactly. nervous. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure, I don't know if they thought about the whole, um, you know, knockoff um, things. What, what do you call that? Counterfeit. <laughs> the counterfeit market. Ish. Yeah. It existed, but I think what they, um, I think that they were most nervous and this kind of goes to the counterfeiting or, you know, gray market of the goods. They were most nervous about their brands and, we couldn't really appreciate it then that, you know, WWW worldwide really meant worldwide. And, you know, when you went online, those products were available on a worldwide basis uh, in most cases. And so they were just very protective of their brand and they wondered, you know, how it was going to be, you know, broadcast to the rest of the world. And I think that they were right. As I look back on it, I think they were right to be nervous about it. At the time, it felt like they weren't being forward thinking enough about e-commerce. But frankly, it was the combination of, of both of those things. And, and like I said, most of them we won over and 
you know, we became their largest, you know, partners uh, without question, both in the stores, which we still, you know, did lots and lots of business and online. And it gave us an opportunity to serve customers that didn't live in a Neiman Marcus city, Nashville being one of them, uh, where you all live, uh, an opportunity to still shop with Neiman Marcus on NeimanMarcus.com until you got to a city where there was a Neiman Marcus store. Right. Because when uh, when you said that, I'm hearkening back to the days in Kentucky when I would get the catalog in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Uh, so uh, I think e-commerce really helped broaden our reach and broaden their reach to, you know, the customers that had interest in those products in different places. Yeah. So with this, you have sales, well, at the test, sales of approximately $5 billion, and you are employing over 1,500 employees. 15,000. 15,000. Oh, at a zero, you were employing <laughs> over 15,000 employees. What was that like to be CEO of Neiman Marcus Group? I think that, uh, well, I mean, it was an amazing job. <laughs> Let me say that, you know, and I I had to at any given time uh, during my eight years as CEO, I had to kind of pinch myself because again, you know, I wasn't one of those people that, you know, that was my whole lifelong dream, but but there I was. And, uh, and I could never let go of that kind of wonderment that I had achieved uh, that, that kind of role. But, but I love the role. And um, I, I think what I loved best about it was uh, that I loved being around our customers. And we had, you know, a very interesting, and, and, and Neiman Marcus still does, you know, the most affluent consumers in the world shop at Neiman Marcus. And they were all very interesting people from interesting places. And they all had interesting stories about how they had achieved whatever they had achieved. So I loved being around our, our customers. Uh, having come up in the company over 33 years, um, I didn't, of course, didn't know all 15,000 uh, employees, but I knew a lot of the employees. And it gave me great satisfaction to either see people grow in the company or be able to see them when I went to visit stores or warehouses or you know wherever I was traveling. That gave me great satisfaction. Uh, and, you know, we there was a lot to be proud of from the amazing history of Neiman Marcus. Like I said, it was started in 1907. Uh, the company was a company of first, you know, it was, you know, one of the first catalog companies. Sears Roebuck was before it, but first catalog company. Uh, this is kind of still hard to believe, but it was the first company to come out with gift cards. So now gift cards are ubiquitous, right? But Neiman Marcus was the first company to actually have a gift card. We were really the first department and luxury store to have e-commerce. We were the first uh, store to have a loyalty program. InCircle was, uh, was born in 1983, I believe. Um, so there were a lot of firsts of the company. And uh, it was really a wonderful place to work. And you know, a lot of the people that I worked with, we all kind of grew up at the company together because, you know, we found our place. We loved working there. It was a lot, it was hard work, but it was very satisfying work. And if you're in retail, why not sell the best there is to sell? I mean, really, I mean, it sounds like it was a good company for people to stay there yes. that amount of time. 
that exactly. if you grew up with so many people there, then they must have really treated their employees well. Exactly. And, yeah. And and another thing I remember when I met you talking about uh, different fashion shows and places you had to go. And we asked you if you missed them. And do you remember what you told us? I don't. Maybe you <laughs> yes. Sometimes it's like, ooh, that looks so really, that looks so cool to go to. That looks like that'd be great to go to. But I imagine you had to go to quite a few of those. Yeah. I mean, I I have to say that I did go to a lot of fashion shows in my career. And I mean, part of it, I was in the business, not because I loved fashion. I love the business of fashion. And there is a difference. Uh, I love that the business of fashion is very fast paced. You have to make a lot of uh, bets on what you think the consumer is going to want months and months in advance because you're buying inventory way, way in advance. And you're buying not inexpensive inventory. You know, it's expensive inventory. And so I love the thrill of that. And so when we went to a fashion show and whether it was a, you know, brand new designer or somebody who'd been around a long time, if there was just extraordinary you know, merchandise, uh, dresses, bags, whatever, coming down a runway, that just got us so excited. Talk about a hot flash. That was... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. uh, You know, that would just get us really, really excited. Um, The industry lost one of its brightest talents yesterday. Virgil Abloh passed away at a very young age, and he was really on the cutting edge of of fashion as a young um, African-American designer. And I can remember being at his very first show and, and we just knew that he was going to be a star. And, uh, and it's, it's really so saddens me and it's tragic that somebody lost their life so young to such a terrible uh, disease as some sort of cardiac cancer. Cancer, right. Mm-hmm. But I will say that seeing people like that at the very beginnings of their career, you know, there was nothing better, frankly. Uh, it was really, that's what made it exciting going to the shows. When you were at the shows, how did you know when someone had it? Like you were just saying he was a young designer, his first show, and you just knew he had something. How did you recognize that? What was What spoke to you that said this designer is going to be big? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I do think that like any business, you, you, you know, develop kind of a, a second sense of things. And uh, I think at the time, even though he didn't like this term, there was this, you know, kind of emerging part of fashion called streetwear, which rather than, you know, kind of the designers on high, you know, giving us what the trends were going to be, there was this you know, emergence of what people were wearing on the streets that was moving upwards. And it was clear that he kind of was embracing these two worlds. And and so there was just something unique about it. And I think that with a lot of these designers, uh, especially the, the new ones who come on the scene, it's just kind of in that moment where they, you know, did they have, did they have that kind of listening skill, if you will, of what was going on in the world and the way women were starting to adjust and think about how they wanted to dress and present themselves. And and so it was partly just training over the years, but there was also, you know, just kind of a second sense of things. 
And today, even though I'm not around, you know, the fashion industry nearly as much as I was, obviously, I can still go through the fashion shows and, you know, I can pick out what I think is like just unbelievable. And then I have to ask, you know, people who are still in it, well, what did you think of this? You know, most of the time I'm generally in the, in the right, uh, in the right ballpark. Wow. I think that's a great skill. I wish I had developed that skill. (laughs) I bet bet it is something that just happens over time when you're around it. You know, it's like anything else. You know, you just, you know, you're around people who talk about it, think about it, philosophize about it, you know, and I I think some of it, some of it definitely can be learned. There's other parts of it you just can't learn and you have to kind of know. And, and, And that's not something that I necessarily have, but I think that I, I learned a lot and picked up a lot of kind of what was important along the way. So what advice would you give to other women that are trying to get to the position where you were? Like, yeah, I mean, you've said, you know, it's a lot of hard work, of course. I mean, it doesn't sound, or I don't know, you know, I wasn't there the whole 30 years, but that you had to really, did you have to break any ceilings or anything like that? Well, I mean, I think that there was plenty of that. You know, sometimes you you kind of don't even realize, you know, that you're, you know, breaking a glass ceiling because you're you're in that moment and you're you're just thinking about, okay, this, you know, this is how it has to play out if I'm going to, you know, advance myself in an organization. I think it's only with hindsight that I can appreciate that. I mean, of course, there were, you know, dozens and dozens of times when I was the only woman in the room, whether it was with, you know, the um, the brand partners that we did business with in Europe that were, you know, early on pretty much dominated by, you know, French and Italian men or, you know, the private equity firms that uh, owned Neiman Marcus along the way uh, is predominantly men, the people around, you know, the table in our uh, conference room, our executive leadership team, when I first became a senior vice president, predominantly men. I mean, that changed over time, but I was definitely a catalyst in that. And so I, I think that I only recognized that I probably did break some sort of glass along the way uh, in hindsight and not while I was living living it every day. Um, there, I did find when I retired, I was going through all my files and I did find this note I had sent to HR when I was first a vice president. I can't even believe I did this, to be honest with you. I sent a note to the VP of uh, Human Resources outlining why I thought I should get a raise. And I outlined in this note that I believed I was being paid less um, than some of the men in the same positions because they're, uh, they were not dual income households, that the man was the only one working in the household. And so the company was paying that man more than me because my husband and I, you know, we were all, always dual income earners. And whether whether that was the case or not, I, I don't even know where I got my courage to do something like that because that was not like me to do that. But at some point, obviously, I thought something was unfair about what was going on. So, by the way, I did not get my raise. Oh, so I was going to ask that. Did you get the raise? <laughs> oh, my. But I think that's a valid, I think that was probably a valid uh, feeling that you felt because exactly. I mean, Exactly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. 
But but at the end of the day, well, I don't know what's the story about the tortoise and the hares. You know, I'm yes. tortoise. I may have been moving slower, but I ended up, you know, yes, winning the race. What Bridget had started our conversation off was mentioning that we every year like to go through the Neiman Marcus catalog yeah. and pick the extravagant gifts. And I asked Bridget, I'll describe one and I will ask her to guess the price on it. And my question is, how do you pick the extravagant gifts each year for the like what? How do you choose them? Yeah, so it is such an, uh, an interesting uh interesting tale of kind of these extravagant gifts. They were just a, a bit of history. They were started basically in the in the end of the 1940s or 19, early 1950s when Stanley Marcus, who was the son of the founder, he was running, running the company then. He wanted to uh, do something just to get press. And so he went out and found really crazy things. And, um, you know, whether it was camels or, you know, there was a, 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 a Egyptian sarcophagi that we sold. I mean, there were all kinds of crazy gifts. And the, and, and the story was true. I mean, that's why he went out to find these kind of crazy gifts is he wanted the press. And sure enough, that press, you know, pretty much stuck with us for, you know, I don't know, six, six decades, you know, past. And there was, when I joined the company, you know, I was 28 when I joined the company, there was a woman on the team and that was her sole role was to go find these crazy gifts or think about things that might resonate with our customers that, you know, might make them think twice about whether they should buy things or not. And the whole time that I was at Neiman Marcus through my CEO, you know, uh, role, uh, those eight years, we had somebody on our team who they had other uh, things that they did, but one of their sole responsibilities was going to find these gifts. And over time, we got lots of incoming calls from people who had, okay, I'm going to cuss, crazy ass things. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That part's a, it's a donkey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And at other times, you know, she was out there trying to really kind of think about, you know, what what was where was the head of the consumer about things? So, and at some point, you know, price really wasn't it wasn't it wasn't about the price. It was about kind of either the aesthetic value, the craziness of it all, you know, that those kinds of things. And I'd say over time, like in my probably you know, 30 years of the company, those gifts, we sold, you know, some years we didn't sell any of them. Other years we'd sell, you know, seven of 10. And I mean, you know, so kind of our batting average actually was pretty good given they were crazy gifts. That was know? my next question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I trouble selling them, but. Yeah. So there was uh, a couple of just crazy stories so, uh, as I said, when Stanley Marcus was still running the company, he bought these camels, camels, and um, there was a woman in Fort Worth that bought the camels, and they, I guess camels live a really long life, and, and they lived on her property in Fort Worth for all the years, and she passed away, and then her daughter, I think, you know, called the company trying to figure out what to do with the camels. <laughs> I mean, no. 
So you I, can't return the camels. <laughs> Everything, but we didn't take back the camel. But uh, <laughs> another year, we sold this full set of armor um, to uh, a gentleman. I think it was like seventy-five or eighty-five thousand dollars. I can't remember. And he wanted it. I don't know to wear. I don't know. You know, you can't ask too many questions about this stuff. And uh, and it was it was a small person's. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't a big. And he bought it and he loved it. You know, we had we had just really funny stories. That the year after, oh, so nine eleven was in September of two thousand. That year, of course, these gifts are you know put together like six or nine months in advance. That year, we had this submarine, a personal submarine that you could buy. Guessing in the few million dollar range. And after 9-11, the woman, her name is Ginger Reeder. Uh, she doesn't, she retired from the company also. She uh, got a call from, I don't know, either the FBI or CIA wanting to know, had we sold any of these personal submarines? Because of course, after 9-11, they were paranoid about everything. So we had gotten inquiries. We had not sold any. So, you know, the ever, like every gift had its own kind of story that lived past it. So it was really fun. And, you know, every year we were on the Today Show, uh, you know, kind of pitching the pitching the gifts, if you will. It was really fun. It, it, there was there was a lot of nice storytelling around those gifts. I, I never have guessed a single one correctly. <laughs> the price wise, yeah. I'll either, just a couple yeah, of thousand. thousand. <laughs> or I'll overshoot it or I'll way undershoot it. And yeah. it's what there was one this year, it was a uh, Harry Winston. Oh, diamond. It was, it was a diamond that was, was set like in a, a Harry Winston band. Was it like 40 something carats? I can't remember. 30.86. Oh, 30. Okay. 30. Okay. And it was so funny. I said, well, wonder if two people want that. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> thing about those jewelry pieces, because we started doing more of that because there's a lot of interest. I mean, people buy those things just like they buy a really fine piece of art and and uh the world is running out of big diamonds and so it's actually you know what whatever the cost was and I don't remember I think it was six million right yeah. I think it was I think it was okay I would have thought it was more I'll have to go back guess 20 million <laughs> and I said you could buy three of them right yeah, it was yeah. yes. I said <laughs> okay is running out of big diamonds so you know I mean there is you know there's all those stories that go along with these gifts so it's all it's all it's very interesting we were just always curious if they actually sold so thank you yes. for asking. you were interviewed and you had discussed three things that you felt were really important for a CEO to kind of be successful in their industry and I thought one of one of the ones in a kind of goes back a little bit to what you were discussing before about taking calculated risks. And you had said that innovative leaders allow their organization to take some calculated risks. Do you think you did that a lot through your nine years as CEO? Um, I, I think I, if I was giving myself a, you know, a grade on how much I allowed the team to take risks, I would say I'd give myself a B plus. Um, and again, you know, hindsight gives you real perspective that I wish I had pushed them more and, uh, and, and also surrounded myself with a few more people who were true risk takers. Um, 
you know, as I said earlier, part of the big risk that retailers have to take, and certainly luxury retailers, is that we had to buy all of the merchandise for our stores and online literally six to nine months. In. So we were we were trying to guess how consumers were going to feel about things. You know, some of us can't even figure out what we want for dinner tonight, much less what we're going to want to wear to an event in nine months. Um, and that in itself was just a huge risk for us. But there were so many other things that we probably could have been even greater risk takers. And um, I think that, again, sometimes it's just not easy and you have to surround yourself as a CEO with people who are going to help push you to think more like that. And especially these days, it's become even more important than it was just a few years ago when I was a CEO. So I know you're on several boards and just, you know, any advice in general for women that are approaching retiring or retiring and saying, what do I want to do now? Yeah, no, I think it is such a good question. I, I wish, I wish somebody had been, uh, more thoughtful with me when I was getting ready to retire. You know, they say when you retire, you have to have a plan and don't retire until you have a plan. And I didn't have a plan. And although <laughs> I, didn't plans, I didn't have a plan. So I, uh, but I, but I will say, you know, kind of almost four years into it, I, I found a good kind of path for myself, but you know, I know a lot of people retire, they find hobbies that they're interested in. I don't really have any hobbies, although I did learn to be a pretty good cook during COVID. But, um, but you know, I, I spend my personal time, you know, between, I have a not-for-profit in Dallas, our Perot Science Museum that I'm the chair of the board of, and I'm just devoted to it because their sole focus, their sole mission is uh, STEM education, which is critically important for you know, both, you know, underserved uh, communities, women, everybody, we need more people who want to, who get a great STEM education and who want to participate in engineering, technology, math, those kinds of things. Um, You know, I I do think that uh, women of a certain age, we need to purge. Uh, And I have become a champion of purging things in my life because I've recognized after having myself and my husband, our parents passed away over the last number of years. What, what a emotional, you know, battle it was getting through their things. And I'm trying to, you know, kind of play it forward to my son and, you know, his, his partner so that they don't have to do that. You know, God forbid when the time comes that, uh, and keeping the things that are truly most precious to us. And, and it's actually in many ways been really a wonderful, uplifting exercise to go through. So I would highly recommend uh, purging. Uh, I'm lucky enough, I've been able to join some public company boards and I advise some small, you know, entrepreneurs, but uh, I've kind of found my my lane, but it's not always easy for women, I don't think. I think, you know, uh, we're not as, I don't think, as good a networkers as men are. And so, you know, I wish I'd been a better networker as the younger woman. Mm-hmm. No, I, I can see that though, because we also were have children. A lot of us do, not everybody does, but, oh, no, but lots having, of yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
and, and having that part of our life and then they move away. And yeah. so that's really hard. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. For having me. I really appreciate it. I love what you're doing. I just, oh, thanks. I'm so impressed. Well, we've really enjoyed talking to Karen Katz today. That is so fascinating to me and interesting. Just all the aspects. Uh, the whole Neiman Marcus catalog thing is a scream and I enjoy it. I know I will never be a purchaser of any of that. <laughs> However, it is just fascinating and how they come up with it is incredible. I loved hearing the stories about the up and coming people in fashion and when you see it happening, about women just working hard and getting to the top position. So I think that's just incredible. And we really appreciate her being here. It's always kind of the women who start the new trends, you know, when she talked about going online and how they were kind of the first to do that. It, it, we always seem to be on the, the forefront of changes yes. in the um, business world. So, you know, you guys need to take note of that. You can create anything at any age. Age does not limit you in being creative with new ideas and make sure that you're subscribing to hot flashes and cool topics podcast. You can just press that little subscribe button. So you don't miss a single episode because you never know what you're going to get with Bridget and I, but it's always going to be interesting. Make sure to check out all of our social media. We're on Instagram or on Facebook. We are on TikTok, believe it or not, and Pinterest. Our Pinterest board, it's well-trafficked. Like there are a lot mm -hmm. of people that come on and we have a lot of interesting stuff on there. So make sure to check that out. And to um, check us out on YouTube as well if you want to watch the video of this. Have a great day, guys. Uh, hope you enjoyed this bonus episode and we will talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.